In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Spirit, three in one. God make us holy, Christ make us holy, Spirit make us holy, three all holy. Three aid us in our hope, three aid us in our love, three aid us in our worship. Amen. And now let's come to our triune God in prayer. Let's pray together. Living love, beginning and end, giver of food and drink, clothing and warmth, love and hope, life in all its goodness, we praise and adore you. Jesus, wisdom and word, lover of outcasts, friend of the poor, one of us, yet one with God, crucified and risen, life in the midst of death, we praise and adore you. Holy Spirit, Storm and breath of love, bridge builder, eye opener, unseen and unexpected, untamable energy of life. We praise and adore you. Holy Trinity, forever one, whose nature is community. Source of all sharing, in whom we love and meet and know our neighbour. Life in all its fullness, making all things new. We praise and adore you. Amen. Our Old Testament reading is Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds and the animals of the wild. The birds of the sky and the fish in the sea all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And the New Testament reading is from Romans, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Amen. I wonder who amongst you enjoys cookery programmes on the television. Any cookery programme fans in the congregation today? Anyone's going to admit to it? Okay, this could all fall very flat then. (laughs) Well, one of the programmes that I've enjoyed watching um, this year was MasterChef. And as the series progressed, I noticed there's a fashion emerging in cookery which is to use one ingredient and to present it in a number of different ways. So you might get pork four ways, or duck five ways. And the epitome or the nadir, depending on your viewpoint, that I heard of in this series of MasterChef was cauliflower three ways. Well, I'm borrowing unashamedly from that fashion in my title for today's sermon of God three ways. I'm not suggesting that you cook God three ways. We're not going to have God fried and boiled and pureed or whatever it is. But there is something about this idea of taking an ingredient, such as cauliflower, and serving it three ways that shows us that though the essence is unchanged, it's still cauliflower. The way we experience it is different. Now, I hope that's not too irreverent. I hope you're not going to sack me for comparing God to a cauliflower. Um, But something that we can ponder the mystery of God, who we experience in different ways. And today, we are going to try to look at God three ways. The first way we're going to think about this is through the concept of person, or more precisely, persona that is sometimes called the ontological trinity. Um, If anybody's got the key, Ken's written a great poem about um, theological glossolalia, as he calls it, theological language. And that's probably one of them. The ontological trinity, the trinity as being. Probably the most well-known and certainly the easiest to defend scripturally way of referring to our triune God is as Father, Son, and Spirit. The three persons, or more precisely personae, of the Trinity. Christians can be quite disparaging about polytheistic worldviews, and yet at the same time refer to God as three people, based on a reading of scripture that is unhelpfully literalistic. And it's no wonder that people of other faiths, monotheistic and polytheistic, find us bewildering and say, actually, you Christians believe in three gods. This is what happens because we can slip very easily into a careless kind of Christianity that confuses the three persons or personae of the Trinity with three people. We talk of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who can be imagined as some kind of family living together in heaven. 
we actually need to go right back to the first century and back to the original languages in which scripture was recorded if we're to stand any chance of understanding how a single God can be experienced or worshipped in three persons. Now, I never did classical languages at school, but I did a bit of research, and the word persona, which is a Latin word, actually was used in the performing arts to describe a character taken on by an actor or a mask that was worn for that purpose. So you would take on a persona as you put on the mask. The Greek word used in the New Testament is prosopon. Literally, it means face, but can also, again, be used as a mask in the context of a performance. Now, that got me thinking, and I've been in a slightly mischievous mood this week. So I actually ordered some masks um, from the internet. Now, I'm going to show you these masks, and you may or may not recognize who they are, but I wonder what these say to you as you glimpse them. So we'll start with one which I think everybody should know. (laughs) So, you may know who that is, but what does that say to you? If you see this person, who is? The Queen. So what does that make you think of? What does Queen represent? Majesty, thank you. Old age, okay. That's fine. Sorry? Sovereign. So there is something about, we see a picture of the queen and we think sovereign, um, majesty. You might think old age, privilege. Okay, fantastic. Right, we'll have to move fairly swiftly. This one. So that's Marilyn Monroe. I think I'll have to do some speaking, otherwise we won't get through. So what does she symbolise? Sex. Sex, okay. (laughs) That's honest. (laughs) Beauty. Tragedy. So we see her and we start, words come to mind about beauty, about tragedy, about sex, about physicality. Okay. Uh, Another one. Start this side. Okay, so this is... Oh, it's interesting looking at the faces. <laughs> okay, so this is Lord Sugar. So what does Lord Sugar symbolise? Greed. Greed. <laughs> business. Tottenham Sorry? Tottenham Hotspurs. Tottenham Hotspurs. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> aggression. So characteristics that go with him about aggression, about um, greed, perhaps about entrepreneurialism, perhaps about power. Another one? Rolf Harris. Anything else with Rolf Harris? Mix. Sorry? Fall from grace. Okay, so all sorts of different things. And I've got two more, which we haven't really got time to to go with. Uh Elvis Presley and Victoria Beckham. Uh, But again, there's something about you see those and you think about celebrity and what that is, maybe about tragedy, Um, maybe about family, I think, with Victoria Beckham, actually. I'm actually quite impressed from what I see of the outside of their family values. There's a a marriage that seems to hold together pretty well. So we look at the mask, and we see something. 
If I put those masks on, it doesn't change who I am or my essence, but it does affect what you perceive. It could be royalty, it could be celebrity, it could be positive, it could be negative. I don't change. I'm still me, but what you perceive could change. And this is roughly what happens when we try to think about God. We're offered these three personae, these three masks, each of which gives a sub-insight into the nature of God. But not one of them is the whole story. The essence of God doesn't change, but we imagine God three ways. Now, how helpful or otherwise we find those images, those masks, those personae, will depend on our ordinary life experience. But within them, we glimpse something important about God. So, for example, if we glimpse God through the mask of Father, I wonder what comes to your mind. You don't need to share that. What comes to your mind in the image of God as Father? How you hear that will depend on your own experience of Father, your own experience of men. Imagining and addressing God as Father includes, but is far more than, the image of a perfect loving parent, which is what we tend to say, God's the perfect Father, God's the perfect parent. In its first century context, it carries a clear sense of authority of the head of the household, which would include blood relatives and servants and slaves. It also carries with it a sense of history, because parents exist before their children. So imagining God as a parent gives us a history. We're not cast adrift in an uncharted universe. Someone was there before us, and so on and so forth. We haven't got time today to explore any of the three personae, but it's certainly the case that taking time to focus on God, glimpse through these masks of Father, Son, and Spirit, potentially offers us enormous insights into who God is, this God who is at once close at hand and far away, who is simultaneously in front of us, and behind us, who knows and understands perfectly our humanity, and yet is a complete mystery. None of these ways of seeing God is perfect, but each of them points us towards God. So that's one way of seeing God, as three persons. Another way of imagining God is a kind of a functional way, based on glimpses we have of what God does, has done, or will do. This is sometimes referred to as an economic trinity. I get kind of confused when you use economic in relation to that, because I think money, but there we go. An economic trinity, although the way I'm wanting to explore that doesn't quite fit with how that's often portrayed. For all of that, the functional or economic approach, is, again, quite familiar to us. We speak of God as creator, redeemer, and sustainer. Now, this way of thinking about God, by what God does, in principle, 
should avoid some of the pitfalls of the three persons idea that drifts into three people. But actually, it does still sometimes drift into a kind of a hierarchy if we don't understand it properly. Because very easily, the three functions, the three thing, ways of doing, become identified with people. So that God the Father is given the job of creating. God the Son is solely concerned with redemption. And God the Holy Spirit is all about sustaining a life. Now, actually, that is not the case. It's misguided. It's very difficult to defend because if we start to read scripture, there is no such delineation in how or by whom the work of God is done. So, for example, if we read the opening words of Genesis, we have the God whom Jesus called Father. We have the Spirit hovering over the as yet unformed chaos. And we have the Word of God identified by the writer of the fourth gospel with Jesus Christ, through which creation is spoken into being. So those who we know and name as Father, Son, and Spirit are all involved intimately in that function or job of creation. In other words, we can't say that this part of the Godhead has this job. But each of those persona is vital to every action or work of divine activity. Instead of nouns, we might be better to speak of God using three verbs and, sorry about this, also probably three tenses. We have the God who has created who is creating and who will create. Who has redeemed, who is redeeming and who will redeem. Who has sustained, is sustaining and will sustain. So for anybody who likes playing around with numbers, and I'm afraid I do, we already have one God who can be perceived as three personae performing three functions in three tenses. So that's three times three times three, three to the power three, 27 ways of thinking about God before we even begin to think, well, how do those interrelate? Is your brain hurting yet? Because if it's not, it really ought to be. There's enough mystery and wonder in what we have already shared to last a lifetime. As we think very briefly as our reading about our reading from Romans, there is still a third way we can think about God. We've thought about God in terms of who God is and in terms of what God does. But now we begin to think in terms of God's character, about the values and attributes that underlie how God does what God does. First and foremost, in the short reading we heard from Romans, we're reminded again of the relational nature of God. A glimpse of perichoresis, Jim Gordon's favourite word, the divine dance in which the participants bring into being the divine purpose of creation, redemption and sustenance. But there's more going on in those few short verses than that. 
Little words with massive significance. Words like grace and hope and love, peace, faithfulness and endurance. Some of these are directly attributed to God and others cited as evidence of God's work in the lives of believers. But it has to be said, we're a somewhat beleaguered group of people living in first century Rome that this letter was written to. Maybe as I just reeled off those words, you were reminded of the list of spiritual fruit listed in the letter to the church in Galatia. The experienced, if not always visible or tangible, evidence of God at work to change hearts and minds. We glimpse these characteristics in each other. We glimpse love and faith and hope and grace in each other imperfectly. These are, in the words of Paul elsewhere, a dim reflection of their perfect counterparts in God. That would be nice and simple, but it gets more complicated. It's not just the case that God has or exhibits these characteristics. God is these things. I'm sure we've all seen those pictures of the Victorian sampler hung above the bed, usually in the orphanage, it has to be said, that announces God is love. It's not just that God does love or God has love. God is love. And we could say that about any of these other words from Romans or Galatians or elsewhere in Scripture. I could list list dozens of examples, but I'm not going to. But if you want a challenge, go and get your concordance out when you go home and see what you can find. God is truth. God is love. God is grace. God is faithful. I have no idea how many attributes of God's character can be identified in the scriptures, but there are plenty. And were we to combine any of those with the ideas we've already identified, we'd realise that we can just not count the ways there are of imagining God. More ways of imagining God than the grains of sand on the seashore or the stars in the universe. I wonder how that makes you feel. Trying to get our minds around images and metaphors that we use to express something of the mystery of God can leave us like the psalmist who looks out on a vast universe and is struck by their own insignificance. Without the and yet in the middle of that psalm, we could feel abandoned and desolate and fearful. And yet, God has elevated human worth to be just a smidgen less than the divine. Often you get smidgen into a sermon. Just a teeny bit less than the divine is how much we are worth in God. And God has entrusted us frail, failing human beings with the day-to-day work of caring for creation, the creation of which we are a part, and a creation that for the most part we recognise as beautiful and fragile and precious, a creation that speaks of the mystery of God. And perhaps it is here 
in the complexity and beauty of an infinite universe that we begin to find a way to hold together the complexity of this God who can be understood in three ways, or three to the power three ways, or three million ways, or whatever it might be. I think some of you know that one of my favourite images for doing theology is the kaleidoscope. Each idea, each new insight is like one of the chips of coloured glass that's dropped in and mixed with others to create new and beautiful images. Rather than trying to intellectually hold together this logic of a triune God as three personae with three functions and endless characteristics, maybe we can allow the words, the images, the models, the concepts to be like a chip of glass, which in company with the others adds to our own sense of awe and wonder at the beauty of our God who defies our, our, uh, defies our definition. Sorry about that. As one of our hymns puts it so eloquently, God is truth, God is good, God is beauty. I had hoped to get you a bit of a clip of a kaleidoscope just for a few moments to ponder those thoughts. Unfortunately, it didn't play when I tried to do it in PowerPoint. So I just have a number of images from kaleidoscopes. And we just use that for a few moments as we reflect on this mystery of the God who can be understood three ways, as personae, as action, and as characteristics. Our prayer concludes with words of Henry McKeating, a Methodist minister. Let us pray. God of the Old Testament, creator, legislator, judge, we worship you. God of the Gospels, making yourself known to humankind through Jesus, teacher, healer, man of compassion and of self-sacrifice, we acknowledge your lordship. God of the young churches, endowed with the gift of Pentecost, we crave that gift for us here today. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, hear our prayer for others and for ourselves. We see such amazing evidence of your creative power in the beauty of this land and this season. We pray for those who enjoy the natural world, but see no creator. We need your laws to keep us on the right way in life, but we confess that we often wander from it, and we pray for those who accept the gift of life, but see no need to distinguish between right and wrong or who make spurious claims that their religion sanctions violence. We pray particularly for those whose lives have been blighted by violence this week, on city streets, in domestic abuse, 
or in social practices at home or abroad. We claim your merciful judgment for all who perpetrate evil and your loving presence for victims of evil who have not as yet seen justice done and victims of natural disaster in America or anywhere. We thank you for all we have learnt from Jesus' teaching and pray that more and more of our human brothers and sisters may come to honour his words in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount and to try to see all mankind with an eye of compassion. We see so many folk around us who need his healing and remember before you now those we know who specially need his healing touch at this time. Confessing that we too need to be made whole, we praise you for Jesus' faithfulness unto death and ask that we may take to heart his example of self-sacrifice. We recognize that churches of our time have failed to learn many of the lessons that Paul tried to teach the young churches. We pray for tolerance of opposing views within the churches of our land and for recognition of the talents you have bestowed on individuals of differing gender, skin color, or sexuality. So we recall Paul's words that the harvest of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, fidelity, gentleness, and self-control. We thank you for all who display these qualities in their lives and pray for a greater measure of each quality in our own lives. Thank you, Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that faith is not a matter of knowing the right formulas or putting things into the right words, but of knowing what you have done for us and being willing to let you work through us and in us, letting your love control us. Lord, give us that kind of faith, we pray. Amen.